You're listening to a Southside Baptist Church podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. I always picture after the ascension of Jesus, the disciples talking one day, and I think they start to laugh, and they talk about Peter, say, Peter, you remember that time when Jesus was walking on water? And do you remember uh, when you climbed out of the boat and got, and, and got into that water and how you, they probably just begin to laugh and, about him sinking down into the water. But my thought has always been that he probably looked at him and smiled and said, yeah, but I did something no man ever did before. I walked on top of the water. May have been just for a few seconds, but I did that. Well, children will begin to make their way to worship. And as they do that, we're going to take a moment and pray together. And we'll pray for them uh, specifically. Uh, so we'll, uh, let, let's pray. Let's pray right now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you love us and that you care about us. And Lord, we thank you that the enemy, that the enemy can't take what has been sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's our salvation. The enemy can get us called up into old habits and old ways of thinking. And the enemy can bring old sin patterns and dangle them in front of us and Lord sometimes we can fail but the Bible says that if we confess our sin homologeo in the Greek to agree with God and the Bible says that God you're faithful to and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness to purify us and to make us clean and holy we pray dear Lord that today that we would feel that cleanliness that comes by the blood of Jesus Christ We pray, dear Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you'll help us to understand your word. And Lord, we'll give you all the glory for what you do in this service. Lord, let me be a tool, a vessel. Cleanse me by the blood of Jesus. Use me today. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can remain standing if you would. I want you to remain standing if you would. And take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. Boy, them some great, great songs. And a lot of times I will sing those songs through the week. It's as if they're in my, down in the depth of my soul. And, and so, uh, but anyway, I want us to take and turn to Mark chapter 15. And we're going to pick up at verse 33. And I'm talking today about the coverage of the cross. Now, everybody, how many of you have insurance? Just raise your hand. You've got insurance. Okay, well, these, I want you to take note. These are the people that you want to hit on the road because their insurance will cover whatever damage is done. Edna came up to me a moment ago, looked kind of downcast. And Edna, I said, Edna, you all right? She said, well, it's been a bad week. And I said, uh, well, what happened? She said, well, I had a wreck. And I said, well, you all right? And then I looked at her and I said, well, I guess you are all right. And, I, I, and then I turned around and I, I was getting ready to walk away. I said, well, Edna, was it your fault? She said, no, and I got all giddy and excited. <laughs> I said, well, if it's not your fault, then that's good news. Now, Edna, you can look up now and smile at your pastor there. I know it's been a tough week, but we're glad that she's all right. But you know, when you have insurance, you often want to know about the coverage. What kind of coverage do I have? Uh, what's my deductible? A lot of times there's small print 
and, and legal documents, and especially even in an insurance contract or terms of a contract. Sometimes it's very technical and it's very legal, and we almost need a lawyer to kind of walk us through it so that we understand the terminology. Well, I want you to know something. When you have been, when you've repented of your sin, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and you are covered by the blood of Jesus, then I want to speak to you today about coverage of the cross. And, and the Bible has some, what I call, technical terminology. So today we're going to be, it's going to be a little bit like we're in a, we're in a seminary class. It's going to be a very different sermon than I normally preach. But we're today going to look at the cross, look at the New Testament covenant, and look at our salvation. So uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 33, are you there? Say amen. How many of you have your sword? Well, hold your hand up. You got your sword with you. Well, that's good. And uh, if you don't have a sword, we, uh, we sheathe the sword there in front of you in the few, and you can use that one today because this is your only offensive weapon that you have. Okay, it's the only offensive weapon you have against our enemy, the devil. So you unsheath your sword and uh, you turn to Mark chapter 15, verse 33. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? R.C. Sproul said when you come to a genealogy or a name or something you're not really sure of, he said just ramble right on through it. And he said most people would never know it. So I kind of did that a little bit. When some of those standing near, uh, well, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran and filled the sponge with wine vinegar put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes down and helps him, takes him down off the cross, he said. Verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The Bible says, Jesus said, no man can take my life. He said, I have to give it up. Here's the breath of God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, as we say in the Zimbabwe language of Zimbabwe, Muariakapekomunyama. God has put on the flesh of man, invaded his creation. Now he is paid with his life. Verse 38 the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Let's just stop there and pray again. Lord, we thank you, we love you, we give you the glory for all that you'll do in this service. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Now, a little bit of this is systematic theology, and that may be that 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 terminology may be kind of new to you, but in your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there is a systematic theology. In other words, there is a system of theology and doctrinal beliefs that are all the way through your Bible. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, 
you remember God killed an animal, took the height of that animal, and covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve. So here you have sin being covered, which is the picture of atonement, by the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22 said there's, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So you have to shed blood to cover sin and to bring about forgiveness. So from we see it in Genesis, see it all the way through the Bible. John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who washes away the sins of the world. So systematic theology is doctrinal spiritual principles or beliefs that are all the way through the Bible. It's kind of like when you're building a home. When you build a house, you start first, you put the foundation down. Then you begin to frame up the walls. And if you've ever built a house, at a point where you're framing up that house, it begins to look like a house, doesn't it? Uh, you know, and, and your Bible has certain things that are non-negotiable. Now look this way. They're non-negotiables. They're not up for your interpretation. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. That is a clear spiritual principle from Genesis to Revelation. It's not for you and I to reinterpret it. It's just simply a fact of God's kingdom that we have to accept. So doctrine, systematic theological principles are non-negotiables. Now there are other things when you begin to build a house, you can paint it different colors, and some things are non-essentials. Uh, sometimes denominations disagree on what we consider to be non-essentials. They're not critical to that systematic or system of theology. Now, this passage deals with the cross, but our thought is, why the cross? Why did God have to put on the flesh of man? Why did God send His Son, Father God, send His Son to the cross to die such a violent death. Why do we have the cross? Everybody listen closely. Because the character of God demands it. In Genesis chapter 2, do you remember what God told Adam and Eve? He said, Adam and Eve, he said, you got the whole garden? <laughs> Man, have at it. You can have a great time. But over here, there's this one tree, and this tree is the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam, on the day that you, and this is kind of like, a, you remember I said it? We raised four kids, got 16 grandkids. This is when you get down and look them right in the eye and hold their little face because you're trying to tell them a truth. God says to Adam and Eve, he says, Adam, Adam, look at me. Adam, listen to me. You don't partake of that tree because the day you partake of that tree, you will die, die. You will physically die and spiritually die. And man would have to be redeemed. His relationship and fellowship with God was broken. He hid, Adam and Eve hid after they sinned. So God had to seek them out. He called out to them and they had to respond and that that relationship, that fellowship had to be restored. The cross is God restoring the fellowship between man and himself. God's character, character demands that somebody pay the penalty for sin. Let me give you an example. Every parent knows this. You ever tell your children, listen to this one. If you do that again, I'm going to spank your butt. You heard that? You ever used that? Now, what does every parent know in this room? Did you spank their butts? He said the word butts. <laughs> no. 
In fact, what you did was you gave them what? You gave them another chance. And more than that, you probably gave them another chance. Well, let me tell you something. God's, let me tell you, now, now everybody listen closely. If you're a parent, you tell your child, if you come out of your room, again, I'm going to spank you, and you do not spank them. Let me ask you something. What are you? Just say it real loud. What are you? Liar. You're a liar. Caleb's down here going, liar. <laughs> I'm not drinking my water because Caleb had one hand up praising the Lord and the other one he was sitting there playing with my water. <laughs> no, I'm teasing with you, buddy. In fact, I'll drink out of my water. But you see, for every parent in this room, when you tell your child, if you do that again, that I'm going to spank you, and you don't do that, you're a liar. Let me tell you what God is not. God is not a liar. In fact, Jesus said, he said, I am the way and what? The truth and the life. So God is not a liar. So the cross is in the New Testament, and the cross is the picture of redemption because God is going to be true to his word. Somebody has to pay the penalty for our sin in order for us to be reconciled and restored to God. You know, parent, you ought to look at your child when they disobey you, and you ought to try to must up a tear and say, don't make me have to be true to my word and spank your butt. I don't want to have to do it. I don't want to be a liar. So I'm going to have to say what I promised you I would do. I'm going to have to spank you. Now try that kind of thinking and see how that works. Now you're telling your child that you value your word, you value truth, and you're going to make sure that you value it. Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3 and you go back to the garden, and we've already seen this, here you see man. God gives man a, a command for obedience. Man uses his free will. He disobeys God. He makes a poor choice. And the outcome of that is, is that Adam and Eve are separated from God due to their sin. Then God is coming through the cool of the evening. He's walking through the garden and he's ek kaleo, ek out of kaleo to call in the Greek. He calls out to Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve are hiding. They've made a feeble attempt to try to cover their nakedness with the fig leaves. God is searching out sinful man who's rebelled against him. That's God. Jesus said he's come to seek and to save that which was lost. Man responds to the call of God. Adam and Eve say, Adam says, here we are, Lord. We're hiding over here. This is the result of sin. He's naked and separated. God is seeking him. And ultimately, as we said a moment ago, God kills an animal, sheds blood, because due to the consequences of man's sin, here's blood atonement, and he sets it correctly. He covers man's sin by some innocent animal dying. And here begins the Old Testament sacrificial system that is all the way through the Old Testament. Let me ask you something. Why do you think God allowed the Romans to destroy the temple in 70 AD? Do you know why he did that? Because he said, you're not going to sacrifice at the temple anymore because I've already sent a once and for all sacrifice that has covered the sins of the world. Billy Graham was going to speak at a major university. B Billy Graham was an anthropology major. He's going to speak at a major university. He's kind of sweating it out. 
because the anthropology department of this major university has asked him to come and speak and he knows, boy, they're going to pin his back against the wall. They're going to really press him hard because the liberal movement in our university systems even all the way back then. So Billy Graham gets in there and Billy Graham looked at this anthropology department and all of these students there and he basically asked this question, before you pin me against the wall, what civilization, what society does not practice blood atonement? Name one. PhD sat there dumbfounded because they could not name one. And Billy Graham said, could it be that our creator God is programmed within us that without the shedding of blood, sin cannot be covered and atoned for? Give you an example, C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity. You know what his premise is? One of the great apologetic books? C.S. Lewis said there's a moral compass in every single one of us. In other words, there's a deep set within our being, in our soul, a right and a wrong. We understand right or wrong. We know when other people have infringed on us and taken one of our, uh, wronged us. We know that. We'll say that's not fair. That's not right because it's programmed even before we're saved. It's programmed in us because that's our creator God that separates us even from the animal world. And that's what Billy Graham, it was programmed in us. So here you have, and, 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 and when you look, and you look at the Old Testament, you see the shadows of Jesus. You see the shadows of the cross. You see the shadows of this New Testament Lamb of God who's washing away the sins of the world. As I said before, Christ said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. Christ comes to teach man that, listen to this, look this way, that man cannot rehabilitate his heart. You and I do not have the ability to change this. We can make new resolutions, resolve new things. We can do every, We can go to self-help, but we cannot change our hearts. Only God can. Paul said this, he said, the things I know to do are the things I don't do. The things I know I shouldn't do are the things that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God Jesus. Right? So all of this is a picture of the cross. The Old Testament, Paul said in Galatians 3, and we don't have time, in chapter 3, verses 24 through 26, Paul said that the Old Testament, the law of God, the Levitical system, all of that was pointing us to Jesus so that when Christ came on the scene, we would recognize Him. We would know who He was. Now, Turn to Romans, take a right from Mark. Turn to Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 18, I want you to see this. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 18, 18 and 19, I believe. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. Everybody look this way. That's Adam. When Adam fell, we all fell. What Paul is saying here, he's saying, by the sin of one man, the entire human race was tainted and affected. We, listen, we got a sin nature. Let me ask you parents, have you ever had teacher kids?
lie? Anybody had to teach their kids how to lie? Now, son, today I'm going to teach you how to lie. Uh, son, daughter, I'm, I'm going to teach you how to be bad. You ever have to teach your children to be bad? Now, you may say, well, it comes from my husband's side of the family. It doesn't come from my side. It comes from my daughter's side, you know. But the reality is, is that our children are born with a sin nature. By nature, they're sinners. And as they get older, they, they know how to lie. They develop it. They become skilled at it. They have the ability, a little boy to look, a little brother, a big brother to look, and his sister sitting there crying. Her, her blouse is pulled or torn or whatever. And you walk in, did you hit your, did you hit your sister? He's a liar. And it, and it comes natural. So Paul says here, he said, consequently, just as the result of one trespass, the result of Adam's rebellious disobedience, it was condemnation for who? Who was it condemnation for? For all men. All of us are affected by it. So also, the, now watch this. So also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that does what? It brings life for all man. Isn't that great? Adam, Adam gave me a sin nature, put me under the penalty of sin, under the power of sin, and, and Adam messed my life up. Jesus Christ comes along, one, his act of righteousness and ultimately his death on the cross basically has covered my sin and because of him now, I'm a new man. That's what it means to be born again. So first of all, you see conversion. Take a left and go over to Acts 2. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, watch this. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Luke, who's writing Acts, said this, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And this is where Peter is, uh, Peter is in prison. Uh, well, no, not in prison, but Peter is preaching here. He'll later be in prison. But in verse, in verse 37, it said, when the people heard this, when they heard Peter preaching, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied in verse 38, what's the first thing? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Basically, what he says is repent and believe. Now, when you and I are converted, in fact, the Hebrew word there, um, shuv in the, in the Hebrew, is a, it, it just means to turn, or to turn away, or to turn around. The Greek, it's, it's uh, strepho, epistrepho. Epistrepho, uh, it's, it's the picture of a, it's a stronger word for turning around. And Robert Culver, who wrote a systematic theology, kind of a big old book, but in this he said in the New Testament, the idea of conversion or turning away from sin, death and the devil to holiness, life and God is commonly conveyed by these same words. In other words, when the Bible says that you and I are to repent, John the Baptist said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, what does the word repent mean? Repent means a turning away from sin and self-effort. Repentance means that I turn around. 
And that's what it means to be converted. One writer said, if you have no desire to turn away from sin, you may not be saved. Now I want you to listen. If you and I can live in habitual, willful disobedience, contrary to God's Word, even living in public, willful disobedience to the Word of God, then it may be that we're not saved at all. One writer said conversion is both turning away from something and turning to someone. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, an allegory, he used this example. He said conversion does not deliver us, nor did it deliver Pilgrim, this character in Bunyan's book, nor did it deliver us or Pilgrim from the trials of life. But it sets us toward the celestial city and all along the way, though Pilgrim, this character in Bunyan's book, is tested and tried, there are many blessings as well as the grace to overcome temptation. So you and I repent of our sin, put our faith in Jesus Christ, and we're converted. We're changed. We're born again. We're different. Now how does that happen? By faith. Take your Bibles and where were we? Acts. Take a right. Go over to Ephesians. And listen closely. In Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. Listen closely. This is a verse that we all know, but it's a good verse. For it is by grace you have been saved through what? That was pretty weak. It is by grace, now listen closely, it is by grace, for it is by grace you have been saved, say it again, through faith. And this, not from yourself, it is the gift of God, it's not of works, so that no one can boast. You know the word, Pistuo in the Greek means to believe. It, it means to trust. It means to rest, to rely. Right now I'm leaning on this pulpit, which means that this is a picture of faith. I'm trusting. I'm resting. I'm leaning against this pulpit. Now you may say, well, you're leaning against an object. No, I'm really leaning on the one who designed and built it. You see, the one who designed, Philip would understand this, the one who designed and built it, built it in such a way that these legs on the bottom here are to ensure that the preacher does not, if he leans against it, it tumbles over and falls. This brings stability. I'm not putting it in the object. I'm putting faith in the pulpit, but I'm putting faith in the one who designed and built the pulpit. Does that make sense? So you and I, the Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith, but it means to put our faith, our trust, to rest on the person of Jesus Christ. Look at Acts 16. We're in Ephesians, go back. I know you're thinking this is Bible drills. Well, that's all right. In, in Acts chapter 16, you remember this scene here? This Paul and Silas are in, in prison in Philippi. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 30, at a certain point, the Philippian jailer brings Paul and Silas out and he looks at them and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Look at verse 31. They replied what? What do they say? 
What did Paul and Silas say? Say it real loud. Yeah. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what? You might be saved. I hope you'll get saved. Strong possibility. What does he say there? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You see, by faith. In that word there, if you go over to, well, let's do it. Go over to John chapter, Gospel of John chapter 1. Boy, you're going to go, man, I tell you what, I'm never going to forget my Bible again. That preacher wore us out. In John chapter 1, John chapter 1 verse 11, He came to that which was his own, talking about Jesus, but his own did not recognize him. Verse 11, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet all who received him to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be what? To be the children of God. You see, the word there in receive in the Greek is lambano. You know what that means? That means to take it. It's as if God says, listen, here's my son, and I'm offering you forgiveness, eternal life. I'm offering you the Holy Spirit, your body now being the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm offering you a new life, a new beginning. I'm offering you not only a good life here, a great life here. I'm offering you eternity in heaven. I'm offering all that to you. All you've got to do is receive it. In the Greek, it's lambano. One writer said his disciples seized it. His, I love this. Listen to this. His disciples, the disciples of Jesus, seized upon Jesus so vigorously and decisively that they ultimately died in his service. He went on to say to believe is to take the life of Christ, his teaching, teachings, and appropriate them to your own life. You remember when in John 6 when everybody began to leave? Thousands begin to leave. Kids, stay with me here. Thousands begin to leave. You remember that? All these people, thousands begin to walk away. And finally, Jesus walks over and he looks at his disciples and he says, Men, will you also go away? You remember what Peter said? What did Peter say? He said, The Lord, where are we going to go? To whom shall we go? You ever look around and think sometimes, man, I thank God that I'm a Christian. You know, you just thank God you're a Christian. And so here, the Bible is talking about faith. And you and I are justified by faith. Justification by faith. And by faith alone. One writer said justification by faith alone is the hallmark of the Reformation. In other words, Martin Luther. In other words, God justifies you and I by our faith and our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I I read this, and I'll be honest with you, man, it was, you know, and uh, Therese back there, reporter with Clarion Ledger, and just, uh, Therese, we prayed with you. But... uh, The Heidelberg Catechism, it reads this, and because Therese, you were raised Presbyterian, so a Presbyterian would recognize this. But in the Heidelberg Catechism in 1563, it reads this. Now listen to this. This is taught to children that that are maturing and growing up in the faith. It begins with a question. How are you righteous before God? Now listen to that. How are you righteous before God? 
the answer. Only be true faith in Jesus Christ. Now it's a little bit in the old English. Only be true only be true faith in Jesus Christ. In spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have not kept any one of His commandments and that I am still prone to evil. The song prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Though I'm even, listen, I've not kept any of God's commandments. I'm prone to all that is evil. Nevertheless, now listen to this, God, without any merit of my own, out of pure grace, grants me the forgiveness, grants me the benefits of the perfect expiation. I guess I'm saying that, is that correct? Expiation. Which means that what God does is God removes something or takes away something. What is God doing when you and I put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ? What happened at the cross? God takes the sin of all mankind. He puts it on His Son, Jesus Christ. Christ goes to the cross. Propitiation is another word which simply means that God turns the wrath that is to- should be toward you and I, and He turns it toward His Son. Does that make sense? The reality is, let me give you an example. Let me, put it, let me put it in terms you'll understand. Let's say that our worship leader, Jeffrey, is going home, and he's going down I-20, and I come through the stack there at Pearl, and as I come to the stack at Pearl, I see that an officer with the blue lights on is pulling Jeffrey off the side of the road. And a man, I just go, oh, man, I hate that, you know. I hate he's getting ready to get a ticket. So all of a sudden, I floor my vehicle and just shoom, go by. And that old highway patrolman's vehicle, it kind of shakes a little bit. He's just getting out of the car, getting ready to ride a ticket. Now, what do you think the patrolman's going to do? What? Listen, I've seen them do it. I've been with highway patrolmen when they did just that. They looked at the person they pulled over and said, well, you're lucky this time, got to go. And they jumped in the car, and then we were off chasing somebody else that flew by him like he was standing still. You see, the wrath of the patrolman toward Jeffrey and a ticket that he's about to write has been uh, avoided because now his attention is turned to somebody else who carries a greater weight of uh, guilt or whatever. Now, I know that's a poor excuse because Jesus was without sin. He was the perfect Lamb of God. What God did, propitiation, means that God takes His anger and His wrath and He takes it and He aims it directly at the cross of Jesus Christ because in that moment, Jesus becomes sin itself. He has taken all of our sin and taken God's wrath and God's punishment that should be aimed at me. He's taken it upon Himself. That's propitiation. Now, if you, pick up the, if you pick up the Heidelberg Catechism, which reads so well here, it goes on to say that it, the satisfaction Jesus Christ has satisfied, He's paid our penalty, and listen, listen to this. He has imputed to us His righteousness while our sin has been imputed to Christ. 
Christ takes, listen, Christ takes all my sin, puts it on the cross, it's put on him. All my sin, all your sin is imputed, which is an accounting term, Sarah, which is to impute means that you take somebody's debt and you put it on another person's account. He takes the debt of all of our sin, puts it on Jesus Christ's account. He pays our penalty. Listen, watch this, and what's imputed to you and I is his righteousness. I'm justified in a court of law. It's a legal term, ledge. It means that the judge pronounces me innocent, guiltless, sinless. Wow. Why? By grace through faith. One writer said this. He said, God declares the believer righteous by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. The propitiation, the turning of God's anger and wrath from sin and sinner to the one who hangs on the cross and then declares the believer righteous, innocent, justified, which is a legal term which means to declare us innocent as if we had never committed a single sin and were restored into a right relationship with God. Imagine that. When you and I stand before God one day, all our sin has been imputed to the to the to the to the account of Jesus Christ, all his righteousness has been imputed to us, and when God looks at us, he sees us sinless, faultless, because he sees his son. Man. Well, that, that may be true, preacher, but that's, the, you know, that's, you know, but I've, I got saved, and I've done a lot of bad things. Well, let me ask you something. Where was your sin and my sin when Jesus went to the cross? It was all in the future. Let me tell you, you, the coverage of the cross covers until you go to heaven. Let me repeat that. Your, 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 your insurance plan, your coverage by the blood of Jesus Christ, your coverage covers you all the way to the end. Any accident you may have, anything that may, you go mess up, you go do wrong, you're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Atonement means to cover our sin by the shedding of blood. Propitiation means that God turns uh, his wrath from our sin and, our, and us as sinners to his son Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus' sweat turned to blood. He's the substitution. You remember who did the crowd want? They said let Barabbas go free. And Jesus dies in the place of Barabbas. To impute is to take the sum of our sin and the sin of the world and credit it to the account of Jesus Christ to impute the righteousness of Christ to our account by faith. And justification means that God declares us innocent in his court. Now last thing. John chapter 3 verse 16. How many of you know John three sixteen? Raise your hand. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Listen to verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son, and his name is Jesus. If you've never repented of your sin, if you've never re received the forgiveness of God by faith, then you stand condemned right now. You are one heartbeat away from eternity. 
one heartbeat away from hell. No games with God. One second after death, eternity, separated from God, everything that is good. You may say, well, my name's on the church roll. That doesn't mean anything. Well, you know, I became a member of the church years ago. That doesn't mean anything. Well, I've been baptized. That doesn't mean anything either. What means something is that you've repented of your sin and you've put your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. You no longer trust even your self-effort. You can go ahead and stand. There's a picture, I, I really, John would have loved to have had it. I, I don't even know if it's even possible if we could have pulled it up. And, it, and I've seen it on Facebook, and I don't know if it's on other. But have you seen the picture that looks like, um, like somebody's under the water, and they're looking up, and you, you're seeing up through the translucent water to a figure that's standing on top of the water, and it's Jesus, and he's reaching down. you seen this picture? It's a beautiful picture. In other, in other words, it's a person who's, they're drowning, they're going down, and they look up and they see Jesus, and the sun is behind them, and the translucent, the, you know, the water is just beautiful, and they can see up through there, and they see standing on top of the water is Jesus. And all they've got to do is reach up. Let me tell you something, and you've heard me say this. Have you ever drowned? Anybody ever drowned? Well, that's silly. Nobody's ever drowned. You wouldn't be here. You didn't drown, Alex. You wouldn't be here. Almost. Now, how many of you have almost drowned? I mean, now, wait a minute. I don't mean that, you know, somebody. I mean, you were under, you were gone. Swallowing water, out. Let me tell you something. It happened to me 55 years ago. Never forgot it. I was gone. I was dead. I was a second grade, seven-year-old kid. Literally, I knew I was dead. I was gone. Nobody there. I was in a place called Coquina Pit. My dad was an engineer with NASA. I had slipped off after school, wore a swimsuit up under my school clothes. Me and this other boy, and he was nothing but bad news. Bad company corrupts good morals. He was nothing but bad news. He coaxed me out there. When I began to drown, he took off. Got on his bike and took off. I was dying. I'm under the water going on. I always say, my dad listens to this or, or the sermon, this will always grieve my dad's heart because it's how close he came to lose so I'm dying. 55 years later, can still see the scene vividly in my mind. Vividly. I know I'm dying. And as I'm going down, I look up and I can see through that beautiful spring-fed place called Coquina Pit. And I, and I looked up through that, that water and, and, and I knew that I was dying. I could see the sun rays glimmering down there. See it in my mind right now. And I'm dying. Seven years old, dying. When all of a sudden, I, I guess I just gave up. I mean, I'm just going right on down. It's getting dark. When all of a sudden, down reaches a hand and just pulls me up out of that water. I tell you, Russell, like I was a rag doll, like I didn't weigh nothing. God is my witness. A Seminole Indian, cold black hair, tan shoulders about that wide. Some people said, you think it was an angel? I don't know. All I know was this guy, young guy, he reached down. He was like 18, 19, 20 years of age. looked like a god to me. He reached down, pulled me up out of that water. He's treading water. 
Any dad knows to swim with your kids on your back is almost an impossibility. He pulls me up out of that water, turns me around, sets me on those broad tan shoulders, and treads water across that coquina pit, across that, that pool of water there. Gets me to the other side, and it was fenced in because of security, as usual, I was trespassing, and looks at me and says, are you all right? He said, son, I've got to take you back to the other side. Puts me back on his back, treads all the way across that coquina pit, and listen, puts me out on the other side, tells me, son, I don't want to see you back here until you learn how to swim. Do you understand me? Now you get on your bike and you go home. And I'm telling you, I would not be here today. Caleb, come here, buddy. This is my man here. And Caleb wouldn't be here either. You see, the reality is, is that God sent that Seminole Indian not only to save a seven-year-old drowning second-grade kid who God would send all over the world preaching the gospel in Europe and in Africa, spend 20 years plus in the inner city of Jackson. God, a chaplain in the military, God had a future for me, but let me tell you what. I'm saved not by anything that I did, none whatsoever. I am saved because I just simply reached my hand up. And in that moment, in fact, I didn't even hardly reach it up. I mean, I was dying. I was going down like this when he reached and grabbed me and pulled me out of that water. Jesus Christ loves every one of you. He's paid the penalty of your sin. And when you and I repent and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in that moment we're saved for not, listen, not only for this life, he'll turn your life around, but for all of eternity. He comes to live in you. I'm here today. He's here today. And a lot of other people are here today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you love us. And we pray, dear Lord, that even now, that the power of your Holy Spirit, dear Lord, would be in this place. We pray, dear Lord, for men and women, boys and girls, people who are in this room right now. God, as you've spoken to their heart, you've reminded them that you love them. You love them unconditionally that you've done everything that you can to provide salvation, deliverance, redemption. The word redeem means to be bought back. That the coverage of the cross provides for us atonement, the covering of our sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. It provides propitiation, meaning that God's wrath has been turned from us and our sin and the judgment that we deserve. And it's been turned toward the cross of Calvary toward his own son, Jesus, who's paid the penalty. We've been redeemed. We've been bought back like a slave that's being auctioned off. You have bought us by the most priceless gift that you could give, your blood, your life. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. But through simple childlike faith, and by the grace of God, by grace, through faith, through us, pistuo in the Greek, believing and trusting and resting on the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves more saved. There's nothing that we can do bad to make ourselves less saved. We are saved 
We are children of God. As Jeffrey and we sang a moment ago in that song, the enemy can't take it from us. We can grieve your Holy Spirit. We can quench your Holy Spirit. But we can't force the Holy Spirit out. The Holy Spirit will not leave. That's why it's the New Testament, the new covenant, the new agreement that's been sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we've been justified. Which means in the court of God's law that God, the supreme judge, has, has made the decision. He has pronounced the sentence. And the sentence on every one of us in Christ is innocent. They're innocent. Their penalty has been paid. There is no debt. It's been covered by the blood of Christ. And Lord, I pray if there's one man, one woman, one boy, one girl who today knows that they're not saved, they know that they're not a Christian, they're under the judgment of God, they're afraid to die because they don't know where they would spend eternity. Chances are right now you've spoken to their heart. And I pray, dear Lord, that they would come. That they would just come and say, Brother Jeff, I, I want to be saved. I want to give my life to Christ. I want to pray to, to receive Jesus today and begin a new life. I'm tired of this being on the fence. I want to sell out to Him. For others in this room, it may be to spend moments at this altar recommitting, rededicating. God, speak to us. In the name of Jesus, amen.